seated, and we are going to turn there in the Word of God. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we go to that Psalm 119. Uh, it was uh, George Wishart in the uh, early days of the Reformation in Scotland who was condemned to death and was up on the scaffold, and as was the custom of the time, they allowed him to pick a psalm to sing. He was hoping, he had heard that there was a pardon on the way for him, so he picked Psalm 119. And he was only two-thirds of the way through when his pardon arrived. So, you know, sometimes it pays to know this Bible trivia. 119 is the psalm that we turn to this morning. And if you're visiting with us, I'll mention that we are in a rare topical series, departing from my ordinary practice of just continually going through a book of the Bible. Here in the summer, when so many of you are here and there, as this morning, going on vacation, I try to present to you some of the ideas from some of the greatest books ever written, and this year, in honor of the 100th anniversary of it, we're considering some ideas from Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Even though it's 100 years old, it is very important in understanding our world today and, indeed, the two faiths that still inhabit the one nominal Christian church. Well, We are still preaching expository sermons, so let us go to the Bible and reading together from Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is that very delight that we desire now. We have come to seek you with our whole heart. Now, according to your word, may it be revealed to us. Give light, O Lord, and give an understanding not only that we might understand your precepts, but also how we might walk in such a world as this and walk wisely to the glory of our eternal Savior in whom we pray. Amen. A few years ago in the eastern Himalaya foothills, uh, The uh, director of YWAM, a large missionary organization, wrote, A missionary stood in a dusty village marketplace and preached. He held up the Bible and said, This is God's book. And he began to tell the people what it taught. Well, after he finished speaking, the crowd dispersed, but one man approached him. He was dressed in the hand-woven robes of a village high in the mountains. Is that really God's book? He asked the missionary. Yes, this is God's book, he replied. The villager said, may I tell you the story of my tribe? In the old days, the man said, we always lived by God's book, but our ancestors were driven from their lands. The whole tribe had to leave their home far to the west of the Himalayas and make their perilous journey over the mountains to the east. While making the crossing, he said, our people were caught in a storm, and they lost the book. The effect 
on the tribe was catastrophic. Now they don't know how to live any longer. The people were adrift. So he said, will you bring God's book to my tribe so that we will know how to live again? The tragedy of losing the book and of losing the light of life, that catastrophic effect on society has happened time and time again in history. Well, even in biblical times. And we are witnessing it to an extent again today in the West, not so much in America as it is in other places in the uh, old Christendom. Although 85% of Americans have a Bible in their homes, and although the average household in our country has 4.3 Bibles, more than half of our countrymen report that they've read little to none of it. Why? Well, it's simple, because people no longer consider to be, as the passage puts it, the Word of God. Well, why not? Now, that's a good question. Because of the pervasive influence of a rival religion, which, in the 20th century, captured nearly all the historic mainline churches and their schools, the founders of this non-supernatural religion... Uh, taught primarily out of Germany, sought to make Christianity acceptable to the modern world by changing the message, confusingly, without changing the words. Speaking still, for example, of Christ's resurrection from the dead while denying that he actually rose from the dead bodily. But, But they keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, as one theologian put it. The same thing, the change of word, meaning, was done for God, for man, for sin, for salvation, for Christ, and so forth. And this was extremely confusing when it came into the church. The same words were being used, a different meaning was attached to them. Some thought there were just some new theories popping up here and there, a different theory perhaps of the resurrection or of the miracles of the Lord or of his atonement and so forth. But 100 years ago, one man had actually studied in Germany from one of the most famous liberal teachers of all time, and he wrote a book to explain it to the church. The title of his book says it all, Christianity and Liberalism, two religions which could not be more different. Last time, we considered the profound differences in their views of God and man. They said, well, he said, look, at least the Unitarians still at least believe in a personal God, as do, he said, I admit, some, although a diminishing number of the liberals today. But it's a very different thing that has come into the church now. Well, last time we considered the views of God and man, but today we consider the Bible, the foundation of this all. And uh, I checked artificial intelligence again, just to make sure that uh, I understood what I thought I understood, to get a summary for you, and here it is. I think it's going to put me out of business. Liberalism uh, seeks, it says, an understanding of the Bible that would appeal to contemporary culture. It does not regard the Bible as a source of infallible doctrines or divine commands, but as a record of the religious experiences of the community. 
It says that the books of the Bible, having come from different historical and cultural contexts, have contained, contain errors, contradictions, myths, limitations, and biases. Well, that is the view of liberalism. But we're not believers in AI. We're believers in the Word of God. So let's turn to the passage that's before us today. That is an overview of what we'll see. Let's look at the passage before us. We might understand, actually, the, the view of Christianity, the true view that is taught to us here. This is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible, weighing in at 176 verses. To explain the heading that many of you have in your Bible, this is an acrostic psalm. That is to say, there's eight couplets, each, uh, beginning each with each of the letters of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, the first eight verses all begin with the letter Aleph. The next eight verses all begin with the letter Bet, and so forth. And you might notice that every couplet, every one, refers to the scriptures in one way or another, using a great variety of terms like commandments, testimonies, promises, precepts, and judgments. This is uh, a psalm that is uh, heavy on the commandments, or Torah, uh, which are frequently mentioned here, the commandments, I should say. I'll explain that in a second. But it, it's, it, it does encompass all that the Bible teaches about God and ourselves and the way of salvation and the life of faith. In other words, it's not just the, the laws of God. Verse 40, 41, for instance, let your mercies also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So it's the, the full range of God's revelation. Even the word Torah, which I mentioned earlier at the wrong place, uh, usually translated law, Torah ordinarily refers to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses that teach us the history of God's election and his redemption of his ancient people and of Moses and uh, Abraham and so forth, as well as of God's character, his love, faithfulness, mercy, justice, power to save, all of which figure large in Psalm 119. So this is a psalm of the scriptures in which the psalmist is constantly talking about, delighting in, longing to understand more of this word. But let's ask three questions of the passage today. First, whose word is it? Second, why should I believe it? And third, can we separate the Bible from Christian experience? This will be our study today. Whose word is it? Why should we believe it? And can we separate the Bible from Christian experience? So first, whose word is it? Whose word is this? Well, it's clear from the passage, isn't it? The most common description of the scriptures here in the passage I read is your word. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 16. In fact, my translation has that phrase 39 times. In this psalm, either your word, taking the scripture as a whole, as the word of God, or your words, that is, all the words in it. Well, um, 
when Paul wrote that all scripture is breathed out by God, he wasn't coming up with something new. No, neither was Peter when he wrote that above all, you must understand, no prophecy of scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, he says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the fancy word that Machen describes in his book is sometimes called, anyway, plenary inspiration. Vocab word for some of you, plenary. You ever been to a conference and they had a plenary session? Right? That means that you're all there together, every one of you, all together. Well, it's all together inspired, every last one, every word, the plenary verbal inspiration. Let me let Machen explain um, what, what the term means. He says, its opponents speak as though it involved a mechanical theory of activity of the Holy Spirit as dictating the Bible to writers who were little more than stenographers. Okay, so, so people that uh, the, the, the liberals criticize uh, the Christian view saying, oh, we just believe that uh, God said, hey, take this down. Okay, type it like, like, like. They were stenographers. No, 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 no. That, that, that is more or less how the Koran came, by the way, but that, that's not the biblical view. That's not the Christian view at all, he explains. As a matter of fact, the doctrine of plenary inspiration does not deny the individuality of the biblical writers. It does not ignore their use of ordinary means for acquiring information. It does not involve the lack of interest in the historical situations which gave rise to the biblical books. What it does deny is the presence of error in the Bible. It supposes that the Holy Spirit so informed the minds of the biblical writers that they were kept from falling into the errors that mar all other books. I called them earlier the books of Moses because the fullness of Moses' vocabulary and personality and thought went into them. But what we are told again and again in the Bible is that these words that he wrote for us are none other than the very word, words of the living God. The Christian view then, as given here three times in eight verses, is that the Bible is ultimately God's word and that its human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and therefore, if we don't like something that it says, where does the fault lie? Well, it lies in us, and perhaps in our culture. The liberal view is that the Bible is a book of man's religious experience, which varied greatly from author to author, and so any particular passage of the Bible may or may not be true or authoritative, or even authentic. Maybe some of you have heard about that traveling road show a few years ago called the Jesus Seminar. It got a lot of media attention, and PBS loved to carry it. Uh, Tip-top biblical scholars, heavily degreed, lots of letters after their name from Ivy League schools, uh, went together through the five Gospels. Uh, yeah, they, they added the Gospel of Thomas. They went through the five Gospels, and at every verse, they asked the question, do you think that this is what Jesus really said? 
and they each had different colored marbles. Red indicated probably yes. Blue meant, yeah, it's possible. Black means no. And so at, every, at each verse, everyone dropped a marble in the pot, and they counted up the marbles for each verse. And they tell you, therefore, what Jesus really said by this means. Uh, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer, they tell us that all the Lord really said was our Father. Everything else was added later by people who had an agenda, not like those objective scholars, of course, who had lost their marbles even before they started. <laughs> well, you think, uh, how, how did some really smart people fall into this? Well, liberalism uses quite a great variety of approaches to undermine the credibility of the Bible, casting doubt on its history, as Jeff said, as well as its ethics, <laughs> suggesting to us it was cobbled together from innumerable religious texts and so forth, so that the Bible is one of the least trustworthy of all books. How very, very different from the passage before us. No? Verse 42, I trust in your word, and take not the word of truth, Utterly out of my mouth. That's the Christian view. The word of truth. Forever, O Lord, verse 38, verse 89, rather, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 140, your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. All right, so that's plenary verbal inspiration if you need a name for that doctrine. Ultimately, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which is truth itself. So the author of our psalm therefore longs that he may have a deeper personal engagement with this God, you notice, through his word, that he might think his thoughts after him, that he might have that word and have it take its place, its proper place, to exercise its power in his heart and in his life. For we worship the God of truth. So this understanding that the psalm gives us helps us to answer various challenges of liberalism today. Machen uh, comments, Let it not be said that dependence upon a book is a dead or artificial thing. That's what people still today say. Dependence upon a word of man would be slavish. But dependence upon God's word is life. The Bible, to the Christian, is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Amen? Amen. So... This is right from the psalm, by the way, although he doesn't quote it here. Psalm 50, your word has given me life. It is life itself. Verse 45, I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. If you had to obey the shifting prejudices of sinful men... Every day of your life, that is bondage unto death. 
But God's word frees us from captivity to such a shifting culture and gives us both liberty and life. Its precepts say the test of time. It is concerned with reality and not with our prejudice. Every generation of every culture finds some things it doesn't like in the Bible, no matter where you are or when you lived. I mean, today, 14% of Americans say the Bible is outdated. 8% say it's bigoted. 7% say it's harmful. Well, this is the obvious problem then and when you try to make the Bible acceptable to such people. If you have to cut out everything that is unacceptable to people on July the 23rd, 2003, to make it acceptable to all people today, well, I tell you, listen, when you get married to the spirit of the age, you become a widow in the next. Liberalism rides on the feelings. It emphasizes the feelings. It starts with the feelings and works back to the facts. The Bible says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Our feelings are constantly changing and affected by sin. But instead, the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Those who take the liberal approach of picking and choosing from the Bible, the parts that are acceptable to the modern age, if they, if, look, if you only take the parts of this you like, you don't believe in the God revealed here. You believe in yourself. I mean, that's obvious, right? Machen concludes, it's no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible, both in its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men, and it must be constantly in flux. Okay, whose word is it? I've not only explained that to you from the passage, which I think is obvious enough, but how that answers some modern questions. But now, secondly, we have a question before us, number two, why believe it? Why believe it? And uh, today I'm not going to review for you the historical evidences for the Bible, the historical reasons for its transmission and why we should believe it today. That's an important study. And if you uh, want the facts, ma'am, I've suggested an excellent sermon by Vodi Bauckham on that topic uh, what is it, why I believe the Bible. Uh, I sent it out to you all by email. There, there are many excellent books describing the historical veracity of the Bible and its contents. But today, I want to answer the liberal challenge because they say, look, why are you putting all of your faith and trust in a book, right? We need to have our trust not in a book, but in a God, they call us bibliolaters. Well, this kind of stings. We're not to be worshipers of a book, are we? No. But we look back at this psalm and we find the answer. We see just how closely God himself is associated with his word, so that even to seek the one is to seek the other. 
verse 10 that I read to you. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes, line upon line, line upon line. The one who truly worships God loves and observes, delights in his word. Can you see that? In fact, the Bible goes on to say the opposite here. This psalm says that those who reject the word, well, it uses bad words, are wicked. Rejecting the Lord revealed in it. Verse 158, I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they don't keep your word. Verse 53, indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Well, sometimes that liberal challenge is given another way. They say, look, this book didn't save us. The book didn't go on the cross, right? No, we don't follow the book. We follow Jesus. Hmm. Okay, what do we say to that? Machen explains here. Um, Sometimes the modern liberal substitutes for the authority of the Bible the authority of Christ. He cannot accept, he says, what he regards as the perverse moral teaching of the Old Testament or the sophistical arguments of Paul. But he regards himself as being the true Christian because, rejecting the rest of the Bible, he depends upon Jesus alone. This impression, however, is utterly false. The modern liberal does not really hold to the authority of Jesus. Our Lord himself held the higher view of the Bible, which is being rejected. You ever think about that? You say, well, I don't, I don't know about all that Old Testament stuff. I follow Jesus. Oh, really? As I pointed out before, one out of every ten red-letter verses in your Bible contains a biblical quotation or reference. Jesus calls it God's Word. For example, Mark 7, he answers the Pharisees, Moses said, honor your father and mother, but you are making the Word of God of no effect through your tradition. Is it from Moses? Yes, of course. Was it the Word of God? Supremely. He uses the same phrase from this psalm, you notice, calling it the Word of God. Not uh, quoting Psalm 119, I think, but using that familiar biblical language throughout, nevertheless. Moses, uh, sorry, Jesus quoting Moses says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He prays to the Father, your word is truth. And I could multiply examples. He hangs whole arguments on the tense of a verb. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Is this your theory? Because if you follow Jesus, this is to be your theory of the Bible. Machen writes, 
It's true that certain isolated ethical principles of the Sermon on the Mount are accepted, for instance, not at all because they are the teachings of Jesus, but because they agree with modern ideas, that which helps the modern man. But such an authority is obviously no authority at all, because when once truth is regarded only as that which works at any particular time, it ceases to be truth. It was written 100 years ago. Pretty modern, right? It's not what works for you. If what works for you is the truth, then truth has lost its meaning. We are to believe it because of what it represents itself to be. The mind, the utterances, the language, the very words of our God himself, that which our Lord himself delighted in, loved, taught, and uh, so frequently referred to. Well, we've considered the divine inspiration of the scriptures, what it is. We've considered why we believe them according to this psalm. Represents itself to be nothing other than God's word. But there's one more important question now to answer, one that really gets to the heart of the modern challenge, something that's confusing today. Can we separate the Bible from Christian experience? Can we separate the Bible from Christian experience? I I know that ordinarily you're supposed to let the Bible ask the question and give the answers, but in this series we're we're trying trying to say, what does the Scriptures, what do the Scriptures say? What saith the Scriptures? Just as Jesus from time to time had questions from the outside come, and he had to say, have you not read? It is written time and time again. So, let's be more specific, though. Let's see, here's, here's how Machen asks the question. Having a present experience of Christ in the heart, may we not, it said, hold that experience, no matter what history may tell us, as to the events of the first Easter morning. Can't you still have Christ in the heart? Even if you don't believe he rose from the dead? This was a real difficulty that Majin had in Germany when he first came under the teaching of Professor Hermann. Uh, I didn't mention he went on to, Hermann went on to support the Nazis, by the way. At the beginning, when, when, he, when he came under Hermann's spell, Majin wrote, oh, so much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I have known in myself during the past few years. I don't know what to say yet, for Hermann's views are so revolutionary, but certain I am that he has found Christ, and I believe that he can show others how they may find him, though perhaps afterward in details he may not be a safe guide. And later Machen wrote home, Hermann affirms very little of what I have become accustomed to regard as as essential to Christianity. Yet there is no doubt in my mind but that he is a Christian, and a Christian of a peculiarly earnest type. That was the young Machen when he was first overwhelmed by Hermann's devotion. This archteacher of liberalism was the most devoted Christian he had ever met. Well, 
I ask you then, what if people today are sincere, very sincere, uh, devoted, good people, they pray, though they don't believe in an empty tomb, though they don't believe in the miracles or even the atoning death, such factual matters say the liberals may or may not be true, Machen asks, must we depend upon what happened so long ago? Does salvation wait upon the examination of musty records? Machen was completely taken in for a time. Uh, he said that he used to sit in uh, Hermann's lectures and just be, just be completely persuaded. But then he would go back to his dorm room and, and he would read the Gospel of Mark. And he thought, there's no way to hold these together. Back and forth he went. What is the answer to these things? This psalm, probably more than anywhere else in the Bible, reminds us that whatever other profound religious experiences people might have, Christian experiences come ultimately from the truth of God. First, light, then heat. I'm not arguing for one or the other, by no means. You see how they are stuck together. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The whole psalm is about having true experience. But if people are rejecting this very word, whatever experience they are having, it's not a biblical, it's not a Christian experience. Because God has brought it together. Let not man put it asunder. Or to put it another way, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. That's who the sheep are. He says later, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. You can't divide the love from the word. The Lord, from the words of his voice, the only Christ we know is that that's revealed in the word. We only know Christ ultimately as Christ has been revealed to us through this word. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, regeneration, the new birth, uh, I'm not taking as separate from the word. The word and the spirit go together. But the point is here, when you lose the word, you're going to lose the Savior. When you don't hear his voice, you are not following the shepherd. When you are rejecting the commandments, it is not Jesus whom you love. That's the point I'm making. I don't want to overmake my point. Uh, Christian experience, as I'll explain in a second, is so important, essential. But as Paul put it to the church in Corinth, you know, five words of instruction are better than 10,000 words in a tongue that might create a terrific experience. 
don't do any good. Your emotions matter deeply. But they are not all that matters. You can't live a Christian life on emotion only. You can't have just experience with no word. That's underscored by this psalm, is it not? It joins them together. This is what you're to get excited about. Well, among many other things, revealed in the word. So there's an important order that's underscored here, an order that's uh, often been explained uh, in this way, fact, faith, feeling. Maybe some of you have seen that little tract with a train on the front. Fact is the engine. Uh, Faith, coal coal car joined to it. And then uh, feeling, the caboose. Um, I think that kind of, I always think that kind of uh, um, diminishes the caboose, uh, the, the feeling aspect of it. But the, the point of it is the liberal project has put the train backward. It tries to emphasize the feeling as the engine of all. And then it makes the facts uh, optional, like you could just get rid of the caboose at the end, and it would still go, right? The, the feelings, the engine, faith, and that facts can come or go as they please. Uh, I think we've all been very deeply influenced by this approach. So, you know, before I became a Christian, I, I think I lived entirely by feeling. And uh, I had to break myself of that bad habit as a Christian of just justifying whatever I felt. Because God's truth must always prevail upon our feelings, not the other way around. That's how we know that Christ is at the center and not we ourselves. Fact, faith, feeling. Um, fact. Dwight, right? Fact. Uh, a fact is something that's true. Your believing it doesn't make it true. It's true even if no one in the world believes it. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Fact. You know, that's true no matter how you feel. That's true no matter how long our, how strong our faith is on any particular day. That's the fact. Faith. What's faith? Faith is taking God at his word for very good reason and living accordingly. Verse 42, I trust in your word. That's faith. Faith or trust must rest on something. It's not going to do us any good if the something that we rest in is not true. I mean, it's a great fact that Christ died for our sins, but he doesn't become your Savior until you exercise faith in him. Uh, Do you need more faith? D.L. Moody prayed and prayed to God to give him more faith, and well, he should. Though, to his discouragement, his faith did not seem to increase. Then one day he read the verse, So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And in a flash, Moody saw what he was lacking. Faith comes from the word of God. So he began to study God's word prayerfully. Like the psalmist, he studied it carefully each day to see what God was saying in his word. He believed that he applied it to his life. He lived accordingly, and the result was his faith grew and grew and grew. 
The confidence of the author of this psalm rested not on the shifting circumstances of his life, which we read are pretty often bad, by the way, about 37 times in its 168 verses we read of his troubles. The author of this psalm, as one author points out, is often surrounded by wickedness, pursued by the arrogant and proud, humbled by sorrow and disgrace, yet his refuge is in God. He constantly cries out to God, retreats into his shadow, and finds solace in his strength. His confidence is not in his feelings. He deeply struggles in his feelings. His confidence, though, is that which he knows to be true about God and himself and about his life and about the future. Don't let your feelings replace your faith. Don't try to ride the whole of your Christian life on the power of your feelings. Feelings are extremely important, but they wear off quickly, and faith is able to take and bear a great deal when your feelings are rather otherwise. But feelings are essential. Very, very, very important here in this psalm. I've considered fact and faith and finally feelings. This psalm is, is a psalm of in, intense, deep, great feelings. I think it's a challenge to all of us, even the most emotional ones here, find that they fall far short, that they feel shallow compared to the depth of the emotion in this psalm, the longing, the delight, the earnest seeking, the wonder, the devotion of the author. In fact, this psalm, this song that we have here is nothing like the shallow emotionalism, both of modern worship music, which is not bad because it's modern. There's some good modern, modern music, but I, mean, but I mean shallow modern music, so to be clear shallow music with its vain repetition of choruses, you notice how very, very different is the depth of this psalm, both in its emotion and in its love for the truth. This psalm, like so many others, is a profound experience, profound experience of knowing the true God, the true mind and heart of this God through his word. And the living faith that we have should and will produce deep and real emotions, mature emotions, feelings which can endure, which will carry us through, feelings which are essential to our lives, mourning for sin, rejoicing in the love of God, and so forth. A non-treasured Christ is simply not a saving Christ. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a man who found a treasure in a field. And for joy, he went and sold all that he had that he might buy that field. These emotions are essential. But there is a proper order. And, And you know as well as I do, we don't always have the same intensity of feeling, right? Our, our, our feelings are almost constantly changing. Right now you feel like uh, it's been a long sermon, right? So, uh, okay. Our, our health affects our feelings. Our relationship with other people affects our feelings. A change in the weather can affect our feelings. Some of us feel, feel better in the summer than in the short days of winter, right? We need to feed our hearts on the, the nutrition of these great facts with great faith 
And then we, like the psalm writer, can find ourselves mourning and longing for deeper experiences. Even at the moment he was writing this psalm, he, 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 he wants more. Do you want more? Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Now the fact is, Christ has died for our sins, yours and mine. We have put our faith in Christ. Fact, faith, and we have experienced some measure of feeling. But with the psalmist, we desire a richer measure of it. We long for a richer experience. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. We, we can't rely on our feelings. We can't trust our feelings. We can't run our Christian lives on our feelings. It's not by feelings we have been saved, but by faith in Christ, okay? And, and, and so we, we must have things in the proper order. I, I read of one Christian lady. She was explaining the way of salvation to a young girl, and the girl had been very confused. She said, look, I believe in the Lord Jesus, though I thought I had to wait for some kind of feeling or some burst of light or something. The lady went and pointed her to some verses in God's Word and said, honey, here's the light you need. And the girl put her faith in God's Word and found the peace and joy she was lacking, right? One, two, three. Fact, faith, feeling. You, you try to put things on the other way. You try to wait for the feeling. You're going to be waiting a long time sometimes. God's merciful, but it's not the proper order. Or again, some people think that another kind of worship service might be better. Not that I'm harping on worship today. It's not my, my point. Sorry. But the, the very biblical texts that like these that stress joy and thankfulness and sincerity and godliness in worship, do so, you notice, in the context of worship that was ordered, formal, full of content, and that required spiritual maturity to appreciate. Don't evaluate things based upon light feeling. Evaluate things based on your response to the truth by faith. That's the order. And that's how the whole biblical worship project was set up. In conclusion, while the Bible has a powerful word of comfort for those of you overwhelmed by emotions of guilt or fear or trouble, it also has a powerful word of judgment for those who are incapable of feeling any guilt or remorse for their wrongdoings, any love for Christ, any reverence for His Word, any thanksgiving to God. The Bible often reminds us that we can so easily deceive ourselves about our hearts and what is right and wrong. Is there something important that is lacking in your heart today? One of the quickest and most uh, substantial prayers the Lord ever answered was uh, prayed for him. I prayed and I actually asked a friend to pray that I might uh, have some sense of my sinfulness. I was just being very hard of heart. God answered in a hurry. Th those, those feelings are important. Is there some feeling that's absent from your heart? This, this, shalm, this psalm shows you 
the way to get what you need. Uh, the author showing you the way of salvation, for he has sought the Lord in his word. And then we find him both rejoicing in the word of God and mourning his own disobedience to it and crying out for help to overcome it and finding that help. Is that not to be your life and mine every day? Every day. Um, I can't remember loving the Bible when I was young. I had some early religious impressions, baptized as a third grader, though I didn't have any interest in following the Lord for a long time. But I knew it was important. But I don't ever remember thinking that the Bible was a sheer delight to me or that I loved it, but I do now. And one index of my growth as a Christian man is the fact that I've come more and more to understand what this psalm is talking about. Is that a mystery to you? Do you wish you, you rode on the heights like this man? He shows you the way. This word of God was a supreme pleasure to the man because in it he found the very heart and thoughts of his God. This word made him happy. It made him sad in important ways. It captivated him with its genius and beauty. It proved him to him to be a mine from which he continued to draw day by day wonderful treasures, more to be desired than gold. And when his troubles pressed in upon him, they did not weaken his grip on God or his word. And so he says in verse after verse, O Lord, I am committed to you, unalterably committed. It is my heart's desire to live a life of faithfulness before you, to serve you and love you in attitude and action according to that word. Come now and help me, O Lord. Help me because I am yours. By my deepest commitments of heart and life, I am yours. Well, may we all so be taught by this word, the great facts, the great faith, and truly have the great feeling that we might also say the same. May it be. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we read such a psalm, we feel ourselves to be spiritual pygmies. We feel ourselves to be uh, entertained by little baubles and not even understanding the the wonders of what you have even just begun to reveal to us. We, we feel that there is an ocean that lies beneath and that we are but children playing on the sand of the shore. We pray that you would give us a deeper and richer and fuller delight and understanding that you would move us according to your word, that in it we might understand the very thoughts and heart and mind of our God, that in it we might see the Christ as he truly is in all of his wonder and glory, that you would write these very words upon our minds and hearts, that we should no longer be struggling and suffering with such a low feeling of faith every day, but that we might be built up, that we might be useful to you and to others, that we might be a, a joyful, a confident, and a thoroughly trusting people. We pray that you would forgive us, O oh God. Forgive us for having such poor hearts, for having such weak faith, for having put so little time into the study of that which is your own very word, our Father. We pray that you would renew us, restore us, rebuild us. We pray that you would revive us, O oh God, and that having understood your will and your way, 
that we would be truly in all things conformed to the image of our Lord.